This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Welcome to the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. This series features talks from a myriad of modern spiritual teachers expanding on how we can all live a life in balance. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash guest. Hello, everyone. This is Chris Bascianelli with a guest podcast on the Be Here Now Network I'm so thankful to be here today with my friend Kelly Carlin McCall. Kelly is a teacher, writer, healer, family shaman since the 1960s. She holds an MA in Jungian psychology from Pacifica Graduate Institute. She's been a Buddhist practitioner for over 20 years and sits on the advisory board for the National Comedy Center in Jamestown, New York. Probably my favorite quote of Kelly's which I pulled from a no-filter keynote that she gave, is when you don't have your truth, you don't have your power. Kelly, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's a blessing. It's a blessing for me. Um, it's, It's quite auspicious, Kelly, that we're speaking today because today, as listeners, well, they won't know because this will be coming out later, this is actually the one-year anniversary of of Baba Ram Dass having become free or moved on from this life. And I know in a lot of teachings, Ram Dass says, if you're present for life, then death is just another moment. So why don't we start there? What was your first meeting with Ram Dass and what sort of, sort of impact have his teachings had on your life? Wow. Uh, well, I never met him in person, which I really, really deeply regret. But I I think I started listening to his recordings. It must have been in the 90s. I don't think it was in the 80s. But it, I, I knew who he was. Like, so my first encounter with him was um, uh, my parents had the book Be Here Now. And this was the seventies. Like whenever that book came out, 70, 71, something like that. So in 1970, I was seven, seven, eight years old. So that was like a coffee table book was be here now. And I remember I would look through it and there would be like, you know, quotes and things. I didn't know what it was, but it was a cool book and it was a cool graphic on the thing. So I knew who he was. 
uh, got the gist, like got like this guy's like a teacher guy, uh, but didn't really get into him, I think, until the 90s. Uh, I've always been a spiritual seeker. So it may have been the 80s because I spent a lot of time at that Bodhi Tree bookstore in Los Angeles getting stuff. So I would get audio stuff and books. And so I was turned on to him. But the thing I loved about him and why he so works for me is that he's got an amazing sense of humor. <laughs> he. Uh, I mean, that really is, for me, I think the highest degree of enlightenment is being able to laugh at yourself and to laugh at the show that this is. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, the last five years he was alive, every year that, um, that Napili Kai retreat would come up. Um, I would say to myself, I need to get there. I need to get to the Napili Kai with Ram Das because uh, uh, I wrote a memoir called The Carlin Home Companion. And in that book, uh, there are two major scenes from my family's life that happened at the Napili Kai. So it's a very profound place for me and my family. And I just do regret deeply that I never made it there with him. But you did connect with him on the deeper plane. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he definitely was, he's been a guide of mine. He's been a, one of those voices in my head, you know, or in my car, because that's normally when I listen to spiritual things like that, or at least I used to. Um, He, you know, he's, he's a guy who, like all those good Buddhist teachers uh, really know how to split your head right open. You know, he, he and Alan Watts are my two guys who really help that crack that ego thing where you're like looking at the world, kind of ordinary world normally. And then suddenly a phrase is said or something is said and the world suddenly makes a lot more sense. and and there's some sort of liberation that goes on with that moment too. So, um, so yeah, he's, he's definitely, I would say one of my teachers for sure. Kelly, how would you define ego? Mm. There's a lot of different ways to define that. Uh, but I would say in general, the ego is the functioning personality that needs to be established in human beings so that they can function in society and have relationships with other people. Uh, it's always some degree um, a persona and usually connects us to some sort of identity. And I think identity is an important word for ego. Uh, it's the I. I mean, ego means I, I am, right? It's why he picked the word Freud did. Uh, so it's that sense of ourselves that walks through the world and functions and goes to the market and decides to have a career in this or write a book about that. And 
you know, it's our little spaceship that we travel around in. And, uh, and I, you know, and so it's, it's an important thing. You know, I used to be one of those people who was like, oh, the ego's horrible. You got to get rid of it. And then I studied psychology and it's like, oh, without the ego, you're psychotic. I see. <laughs> like, literally, you are. If you're not, if you, if you can't organize your thinking uh, in such a way that uh, creates uh, a sense of reality, uh, then you are psychotic. You you cannot function. You are just hearing voices and images and things, and you can't um, you can't function. So there has to be some sort of functional functional sense of self where you can what they call the executive part of the brain, the frontal lobe part of your brain that can organize reality for you, so that you can function inside of it. It's 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 our identity. It's like the first level of identity. And and Ram Dass talks about. If we're going to go to the next part of the journey, the real we have to come to the realization that everything we thought we were is only part of who we actually are. So one of the, Kelly, I have to tell you, one of the most powerful quotes I've come across in any book, in any anything, is from a TV show you produced called Inside the Green Room with, uh, with Paul Provenza. And mm. I'm going to read this quote, if that's all right. It's from your Please. friend, Gary Shandling. Oh, yay, Gary's You could here. pretty much... I mean, I could meditate on this quote for the next mm. 200 lifetimes. So, and this quote is very special because when I watched the show that you produced, you could see Paul kind of like itching it out of him. And Gary, from, from my, me just seeing him on TV, he was so, he remained natural while changing his internal aspiration, that famous Buddhist quote, right? He changed himself, but he was, he didn't let it on that much publicly. So anyway, Paul pulled this out of him. Here we go. All my journey is trying to be authentically who I am, not trying to be somebody else under all circumstances. And then Paul asked, is there confusion? And Gary responds, the whole world is confused because they're trying to be somebody else. To be your true self takes enormous work. Then we can start to look at the problems in the world, but instead ego drives it. Ego drives the world. Ego drives the problems. So you have to work in an egoless way. This egolessness, which is the key to being authentic, is a battle. And it's a battle that has to be won before we're worried about the economy. Yeah, this is like the whole conversation that Gary and I had for 10 years, basically, whenever we would get together. Uh, so some background about this. So I became a talent producer for The Green Room with Paul Provenza. And uh, I knew I wanted Gary on the show. And I, it took a lot of convincing because Gary hadn't been doing a lot of things. And I had been telling Paul about all these profound conversations I'd been having about Gary, who had been a practicing Buddhist for decades, and nobody knew about this. Nobody knew about that, unless, except for his close friends. Uh, but the public did not know. And I'm like, you know, I'm like, Gary, you got to, we got to like, you got to talk about this. Like, this is your, this is the part of your life where you're going to, this is the work you're going to do. And so he and I talked a lot about being performers and this thing that happens on a stage and how he was always trying to uh, come from this egoless place on stage, even as a stand up comedian, which is a really amazing task because when you walk on stage there's 
instantly you're going to ha- you're or you walk anywhere you're going to have a persona there's some way in which you are presenting yourself and on stage especially and then people of course are projecting onto you your identity and persona if you are a performer so but but he and I would talk a lot about how to connect to to take the mask off to to actually let yourself be present on stage to feel what you're actually feeling to think what you're actually thinking Yes, as a comedian or as an actor or even doing my solo show, you would have a script, you would have a joke, you would have a thing you're about to say, you would have a bit you're going into. So these words are there, but then how do you make sure that you are alive and present in all of that? And so I wanted Paul to talk to Gary about this. And Gary was, you know, a little reluctant. So you see it in the episode, you see Paul like leaning in and like, come on, Gary let's talk about this stuff. And that was Gary amazingly being super vulnerable in that moment and really letting this part of him be revealed. Um, Now, of course, if you've seen Judd Apatow's amazing two-part documentary about Gary Shandling, it's all unpacked for you that, you know, this was the man and this is what he'd been working on for, for decades. But um, yes, I'm just so happy that Gary's here in the conversation and present. And Gary taught me so much about the, because when I met Gary, my dad had just died and I didn't know Gary before my dad died, but I, he had just died. And so Gary became this confidant of mine, of my own personal grief and working through that, but also a real confidant in me stepping into the limelight and the spotlight with my solo show. Um, It was the first time in my life that I had the opportunity to um, step on a stage and tell my story in a very public way. And so Gary and I talked a lot about heart and the importance of having my heart in my work, in my words, in my intention. And that when I was on stage, to be super present with my body really letting my body be where it's at on stage and sourcing everything from that place, even though the words were set and I had a script to say, um, to really let myself be alive and living while I was on stage. And that's the removal constantly of the ego. And one of the things I learned through that process was, and this is the tricky thing about ego in general, is that it's always reforming. So you have a moment where you feel like your your mask is off and your heart is open and you're having this wider sense of self and you're more connected to everything in the universe and the audience if you're a performer or whatever it is. And then what happens is the ego just integrates that experience into its identity now. And now it says, Oh, now I'm that person (laughs) who knows how to do that. I'm the person who's connected to everything or I'm connected to the audience. And it makes it, it concretizes it, it grasps onto it and says, Oh, now this is, this is how it's going to be now forever. That's what the ego does. It's like, uh, now it's status quo here. And the minute you grasp onto it like that and say, this is how it's going to be now, you're fucked. 
<laughs> it's over. Yeah, I believe you that's what Buddha said, actually. Yeah, yeah. See, now you're like, oh, now I'm in the ego. Now I'm in an ego state. And now what am I doing? Chasing that experience again. And so you have to jump off the cliff again and say, I know nothing. I, I am, I am, you know, I am just a vessel or whatever you do to do it. And you have to like refresh, reboot yourself and come back to this moment now. So being fully present in the moment, even playing like a character or even playing yourself, a version of yourself as you did in your one woman show. So you're saying that you, you could actually, well, we all can create, I certainly experienced this speaking on stage. We create an ego, even speaking on stage as a version of ourself, then we yes. grasp around that identity as well. Yes, yes, absolutely. And so, and, you know, there does have to be the sense of self that has the confidence and knows how to be a speaker on stage, how to go do your solo show. Like, you, you know, you have to collect yourself in such a way. And we all have routines backstage that we do to get ourselves in the right mindset and all of that and our body ready so that we can go out and present and be this bigger than life thing, because you really are when you're on a stage, you are stepping into some pretty powerful, what I would call like, archetypal energy, you know, you're now that figure on the stage, and all of the eyeballs are on you. And you know what that's like, Chris, it's weird. It's weird to have hundreds of people staring at you and or having a spotlight on you. It's a strange human experience to have that. So you have all of that. And but the more and the first like, oh, I don't know. I'd say the first two years I did my solo show, and I wasn't doing like 50 shows a year. I was doing like 12 shows, like one a month type of a thing, just trying to keep it going and trying to learn and develop it. I'd say the first two years I was out of my body the whole time I was on stage. I, I did not have a lot of stage presence time. I did not have a lot of stage time. I was not a performer by trade or by practice. I'd, you know, I'd done a 10 minute story here, a 12 minute story there, a little bit of this, but I'd never been a person who'd been on stage for 90 minutes straight. And I was out of my body those first few years. And then I would start to see and watch myself become more able to breathe, to live, to think, to know that a moment is coming up and knowing that I'm in the moment and that this particular audience is this particular audience hearing me in a certain way tonight and getting, I'm getting a certain vibe from them. And I know a big moment's coming up where I either have to hit an emotion or hit a joke and do a turn, but just letting go of the outcome and just trusting that whatever's in that moment is going to carry me through to the next one. And that's what started happening for me when I did my solo show in a five-week run at a theater. I started getting tons of stage time. And by the second week, I was just present the whole time with no expectation for the next moment, except for where's my mark and what's my line. Completely, completely liberating and being able to then play with the energy in the space between you and the audience. You could start to really feel the energy in the field 
who is this audience? Are they, are they big laughers? Are they listening? You know, you, you get a sense of them. You can feel, and you can feel the exchange that's going on as I'm in a scene and I'm throwing this out and it's landing on them and letting them stew in that and then moving to the next. It's just, it's an incredible experience and ride. Do you remember the moment when you were able to step into that fully present place on stage, Kelly, and how that felt? I don't remember the exact night that happened. Um, I've I wrote a lot of notes while I was going through the process because I knew I was going to, I wanted to write about it later. And I am hoping this year, 2021, that I can start writing a bit about this exact thing we're talking about, because I think it's really a fascinating process. Um, but I do remember learning to trust myself more and to trust that the audience that I don't have to, I didn't have to, I I remember like the first kind of part of it was learning that I didn't have to make the audience feel something. There's a difference between pushing and just being in it and experiencing it and letting people witness it. And of course, it's always going to be theatrical in some level. But there's a, there's a just an it's it's such a subtle thing. And I, I don't have the words for it right now. But it is the subtle thing between working it and pushing it and allowing it. I mean, I, I hear Gary in you, Kelly, I have to say he like he comes through in what you're saying. And I think that's what I appreciate so much about his work. And I would have loved to see your one woman show. I hope I'll see your next one because it's that idea of having all these eyes looking at us. We're not necessarily reading a script and it might not even be verbatim, but we're going through a routine, if you will, that we've done before, yet it has to be completely authentic to the moment. I watched this uh, beautiful documentary about Chris Farley called I Am Chris Farley and Del Close, you know, the great improv yes. teacher is in it. And I, wrote, I couldn't believe this quote. I had to write it down. Uh, he's talking about improv, but I think it's relevant to what we do. The smallest, tiniest, the smallest, teeniest, weeniest emotional discovery that's real beats the hell out of the biggest one that's phony. And uh, that's why our audience is on our side. And I think that relates exactly to what we're talking about right now. It, it, you know, it's so true. And it and what he's talking about there is humanity, our humanity. That's wh- that's all we want from each other as as an audience member, whether I'm in a an audience of a live theater experience or watching a speaker or reading a book. Is we want to witness humans being human in front of us. We are such creatures that are always searching for companionship and understanding and our place in the world. And when we see humans being humans in front of us, we say to ourselves, okay, I'm safe here. I'm, I'm with another human who, if I need to be vulnerable for some reason, uh, they're, they're being vulnerable right now. And they would be able to to companion me in this vulnerable moment. And I love that. I love that quote because it is, it's so true that, you know, you think about it, like I've always like wondered, like 
what's up with the entertainment industry? Why do we watch all this stuff? Why do we, why did we make movies? Why did we write books? Why did we tell stories around the fire pit? Um, you know, why are we all binging Netflix? You know, why do we watch each other all day? And I really think it's this. I think it's that. Tell me how to be human. Because every because the thing I learned, which was so fascinating when I was writing my solo show, and both Paul Provenza and, and Paul was my director and he was my dramaturg. Oh, he wow. helped me de- he helped me develop my solo show. Wow. Yeah. And everything that Paul and Gary and I would talk about is that um, you have to be you have to let yourself know that even if I'm talking about being George Carlin's daughter and it, and, and like a crazy scene from my family, that would be like the most extraordinary, unique experience in the world. Um, the, the more specific I would get in the, the words and in the being in the scene, like letting myself be in the scene with my parents, the more I owned that, the more the the audience had the ability to relate to it. Because I was having my pure human emotion and my pure human moment, like this is my life and everything. And what audience members do is, whether we're reading a book or watching someone's solo show or watching a documentary about Chris Farley or whatever it is, we're always putting ourselves in the shoes of the protagonist. So people would see me and they would say, well, I've never had my dad freaking out on acid in front of me before. (laughs) But they would say to themselves, what would I have done at age seven if that had been me? And that's how we enter into each other's experience. And that's how we get empathy for each other, too. Mic drop. <laughs> it's, it's empathy. That's, that's the exact word that came to me when you're speaking, Kelly. And that's, and that's the word that came to me so much as I was reading this amazing book. <laughs> Growing up with George, a Carlin home companion. It's some, I mean, it's so vulnerable. I, I said this to you the other day. I'm, I, can, I can only read a chapter of this book a week. It's so vulnerable and, and raw emotion. And it has you, I mean, like last night, I was crying and laughing within the same hour. And then you look at these photos of you with your family and your mother and your father. And it's just, and I just thought, wow, it's so, the word that came to me is it's so humanizing. It's so humanizing. And I know you talk a lot about in your book, how your dad had some reservations, some about you doing your solo show, even though you did, I think you did three shows while he was still alive. I did. I I have to say, I agree with what you wrote in here, Kelly, that uh, you said that the people that came to your show, even just the rehearsals of it, they felt, wow, this humanizes George Carlin even more. They appreciate him even more. And I did. And I appreciate him even more because then you see this person that you appreciate so much and think, wow, this is a human being. And that's the same exact thing you're talking about. Yeah. And, and what, you know, and this is what Gary and I would talk about a lot that, you know, this humanization that I wanted to do of my father, because people, so many people put my father on a pedestal. And I see what that does 
not only to the person receiving that, like celebrity is a very weird ego state uh, for the worshiper and for the one who's being worshipped. And the oh. little bit, and the little bit I've gotten, it's a creepy, weird thing that walks into the room when people no longer see you as a human, but see you as the object of worship because you are no longer present. Only your I, their idea of who you're supposed to be is present for them. And, you know, it would have been really fun to talk to Baba Ram Das about this, because this is what gurus and spiritual teachers get all day long. And this is why a lot of them get, fall into the trap. And they end up, you know, sexually getting into bad situations or money or whatever it is, because they start to believe the thing that the people are projecting onto them. But for me, I so wanted to tell my human family story. I, I, I say this about my book and my solo show, that we are the Carlins and we are pretty much a pretty average American family, an ordinary American family having an extraordinary life. But the issues we dealt with, addiction, uh, you know, uh, dads overworking, being on the road, you know, dads a workaholic, uh, a sex, you know, not sexual, domestic violence, domestic abuse, um, you know, panic attack, all this stuff. You know, it's all just, we're just people having lives. Um, but but the humanization of it is so important to me. Like this is my, you know, like when you think of like a life mission statement, mine is I always want to give people permission to take off their masks and just show each other our humanity. And that's what I wanted to do for the Carlins. And um, and it was really um scary and terrifying for me to do this because first of all, like you said, I'd had a dance with my dad around telling my story. Um, but I knew in my heart and my soul and the deepest part of every cell in my body that me telling my story would help people in the audience find their own way through their own life and stories. And I also knew that um, telling this story and humanizing my father was also important because um, he was a man. And he was a husband and he was a father and he was an artist also. And um, people, I wanted people to know that he may have been a genius and he may have been brilliant on some level, on lots of levels, uh, but he was also just a human who struggled, you know, and we're all struggling. It's, it's a crazy thing, this life thing. It's it's almost like what people connect with the most, Kelly, is is uh, our emotional experience. So when they're watching your solo show or or hearing you speak or anything, they might not have been at the table with you and your mother and father and Sammy Davis Jr. talking about hard drugs and getting off them, but they have an emotional spirit that relates to that. They have their own emotional corollary. Yeah. And in reading your book, uh, when I when I read the very moving part about the eulogy you gave for your mother and how it's Kelly, would it be okay if I, if I read a, a, a few sentences from that? Sure. 
So this is, I believe, kind of where you found that truth about what you were going to do. So you said, as I spoke and looked out at the crowd, I could feel the space between everyone, that unique space that's cracked open by death, filled with an unflinching honesty and where no one needs to hide. And then you continue, as I revealed to myself, as I revealed myself to them who I really was and what I was here on this earth to do, to stand in front of others and reveal the rawest truth about life. And it reminds me of something one of my mentors told me, which I, I got on stage a few months after my father died. And I was like, should I share this? Like, do, do, are people going to care about that? Like, aren't they going to like the adventure in Tanzania more? And I shared, it was very difficult for me. And I was, and I was having a really tough time after. And Roberta, one of my mentors came up to me after, and she said, sweetie, you had to share that. You have to share that because Everyone has stuff. And when you talk about your stuff, it brings up everyone else's stuff. And that's when you connect on a deeper level, right? Absolutely. Yes, 100%. And I think transparency is the biggest gift we can give each other, you know, and, and that's the, the constant shedding of the ego, of the persona, of pretending that we're something we're not, or, or not even pretending that something we're not, we're just, you know, putting ourselves into a role constantly, which then, like I said, gets concretized and, and all of that. And, and I, you know, it's so funny because the biggest, you know, when people read my book, one of the biggest themes in my book is that my father was one of the biggest truth tellers of his generation. And yet he never spoke about his own personal life. Richard Pryor would go on stage huh. and take a knife and gut himself on stage personally and talk about his drug addiction and talk about most people didn't know my father was married. Most people did not know my father had a child. Most people had no idea who my father was off stage. And yet they believed that he was like uncle George, that everyone calls him uncle George. He's like my uncle George. He's like the ordinary guy. <laughs> no one knew anything about my father because he did not present any of that to the world. And so growing up for me, it was really weird because he would go on TV and I would not exist. Uh, even if someone asked about his family, he never talked about us. I think there was two or three times he mentioned his family over a 45 year, uh, you know, thing career. Was that, was that out of protection for you? Yes, definitely out of protection. He hated the whole celebrity thing. He hated the whole people talking about their kids or whatever. Um, but he, you know, he did mention me a couple of times on the tonight show once when I graduated from Pacifica and got my master's and I nearly fell out of my bed. Like, Oh my God, my dad actually mentioned me as a real person. Um, <laughs> but the whole thing for me was that it really set me up in a way. And then on top of that, growing up with parents who were addicts and alcoholics and having to do the whole pretending at school, like everything's fine. Uh, thing that, you know, talk to any kid who grew up in chaos, <laughs> had to do out in the world. Uh, and so for me, transparency became this, and I'm, a, of course, of a different generation than my dad. I'm not, I'm, a, I'm the Oprah generation, right? We talk about everything out loud. But, um, but for me, it became like a superpower, because I knew that the minute I could reveal something about myself personally, in any situation, that there's just a level of 
something that happens in a room or in a venue when someone's real, you know, we all just stop pretending then in that moment. And um, that facade of, you know, politeness or whatever, like, you know, there's a place for that kind of stuff, but there's, there's something so false about it too. And you just want to turn to the person next to you and say, you know, this is all BS, right? You do know that, right? (laughs) You know, so there's something very potent about that transparency. And, and I really do believe that it makes us all feel safer in the world when we can just be transparent with each other. Kelly, you talked about something that I felt I felt was very sensitive, so I wasn't going to ask, but you brought it up. So if you feel comfortable, can you share a bit about your experience? You said you have experienced what it's like for people to kind of maybe not worship, but yeah, worship in a sense, you in terms of that celebrity aspect. And like the word that came to me is I was thinking about, well, how can I ask Kelly about this? It's like it's objectification. And I only experienced that on a, I experienced that on a really small level, like after I give a keynote and it's like, Hey, I'm just Chris from Brooklyn. But but now, no, you're that Right. So, and it's so, I have to tell you, it's one of the most lonely feelings in the world because people don't, they're not, I I remember I went to Tony Robbins conference and he said, he he shared a great story. I think you'll appreciate. He said he was, he was in the, in the bathroom at a, at an airport and he was, you know, peeing and this guy was in the urinal next to him. And he's like, oh my God, you're Tony, as he was peeing. Oh my God, you're Tony Robbins. I was going to kill myself. You can help me. And he starts peeing on Tony. Anyway, but I remember Tony said something so great. He said, people, they're not relating to you anymore. They're only relating exactly to what you just said, to the image. How has your experience been in in terms of that? And what would you like people to know? Mm. How would you like people to relate to you? Yeah, so it's, the way I describe it, when someone meets me, and so let's say I've just got off the stage and I've just done my solo show. So people see that version of me or people, um, I'm signing a book at a book signing thing or some way in which they, they see me as George Carlin's daughter. So there's that version of myself. And, um, and it, the, the way I explain it to people, it's like, it feels slimy. It's the only word that really works. It's a slimy feeling because you, it's objectification, hundred percent. You are, I am now an object. I am invisible. Kelly is invisible. And you're right, Chris, it's the loneliest thing in the world because we are not present. They are not actually interested in relating to us as human beings. They only see us as an object, that thing that they've now like, you are the thing. And it's very, it's the same thing as psychological complexes. This is what happens in a, a psychological complex. What do you is mean the, by that? The mind doesn't see reality. It sees whoever the person is as a, as a replacement for that thing. So like the mother complex, you know, your therapist is an older woman and you know, a certain kind of therapy, psychodynamic therapy, they want you to project the mother stuff on them. So then you will act out with that stuff. And then you can work through your neurosis with them in a conscious way. And therapists are, you know, a lot of the work you do in the therapist training is learning how to like, see when the projections coming to feel it, and to learn how to work with it. So luckily, I had some of that training before I went out (laughs) in the world this way. 
but it feels slimy because A, you're no longer present. You're just an object for the person. And, and what's, what's the slimy part is the person now becomes some sort of fawning, lower status, um, kind of dynamic now like they're like oh I'm not worthy to be here or, you know, and they're and there's there's they're shrinking themselves in front of you and you're like no stop like stop like don't like hold on you're you're disappearing like where are you going why are you why are you putting yourself beneath and me above like what's happening here and you just want to pull them up and so that's partly what I try to do in that moment is relax like Hey, it's nice to meet you. Just call me Kelly. Like, hey, you know, or, you know, and some people you can't reach. Like in that moment, some people will be like, oh, and then you can see their little persona drops and everything's like, okay, now we're relating as humans. Other people, forget it. They worship my dad. He's a literal God. And I am just now this comedy royalty princess or something. And they're, they're kind of lost to you. And you're like, okay, we're just going to have the exchange or whatever. And, and, and it'll, it'll be over soon, <laughs> but it is hopefully so uncomfortable and breaks my heart when it happens. And, um, and like, like you said, Chris, I've only had it on a little bit of a level. I mean, think about people like, you know, Michael Jackson or, you know, uh, Tom Cruise. I mean, think about these huge, huge, huge celebrities who have to live in the smallest bubble ever in order to get some sort of real relationship with people and are are an object to millions of people and i i part of the reason i don't pursue a big career in the entertainment industry or even want to be on stage all the time is because I find this dance between myself and the audience and myself and my ego and what happens to my self-identity we were talking about during the performance part um, as so uncomfortable (laughs) that I don't really want to spend a lot of time like that. I, it just doesn't comfort me. It's not the level of life I want. And um, I found even in the work I'm doing now for the last, I'm just starting my third year with clients with my women on the verge coaching thing I do. And I don't have a lot of clients, you know, I have like a dozen clients a year and then maybe half of those people stay for second and third year. So I have like 18 to 25 people in my coaching client circle community that I work with. I'm constantly knowing that on some level, I'm the teacher, I am the coach. And feeling the responsibility of that persona and identity with clients and trying to take the mask off. And because part of what I teach women is how to step into their authentic lives and their authentic selves. So I need to also be the role model of that in front of them. Um, But I know that no matter what, what I'm in that role I'm in that role. I'm not just Kelly showing up at the call who's had a shitty morning and doesn't really want to be there, but needs to focus because I've got my clients and I need to serve them now. And this is my business. And this is what I do. 
and of course I love doing all that work and it's amazing and magical and it's, you know, built on things that I love to teach and talk about. Um, but it's still a persona, you know? And so it's everywhere you go, <laughs> the persona shall follow. <laughs> <laughs> That's book number two. I totally. I, I, I watch this, uh, it's, this documentary with Ethan Hawke, it's about a, a pianist. I, I forget the name of it, but in the documentary, or maybe it was in an interview with Ethan Hawke, he said something about fame is like, what, is, what do they call it, Kelly? A glass, it's like a glass mirror, or it's, it's like having a glass wall between you where people are not relating to you anymore. But you didn't, you didn't have a choice. So it was actually very kind of your parents, I think, to, to not bring you into the limelight in that aspect. But even still, even with all that protection, people will still sometimes only relate to you in that way. Yeah, a hundred percent. And when my dad was alive, I talk about it in the book, you know, people would walk in the room, my mom and I would be there and you'd see them. You would see it happen. Hi, they'd look at you. Hi, hi, but like gloss right over you. You're, you're not even the thing. And then they get to the object that they're here to see. And then it's this, it's this wow. focus on dad. And, and I, you know, I would say they would spend a microsecond on mom and I, hi, hi, <laughs> lovely, whatever. And then this, <laughs> and, um, and then you would only get attention because now you're in relationship to the big God in the room, or you're a conduit to him in some way or a conduit of him. And now you're in the, and I have to tell you, Chris, I mean, even the most semi-enlightened people this happens to, because when my dad died, I never hung out with celebrities before my dad died. But when my dad died, I started hanging out with celebrities. And there was always the initial thing. I mean, the, the first year was insane for me because what? I was what being I was being invited to like HBO parties and we did this thing through um, the Mark Twain Prize for my dad. Oh, and, yes, sure. And all that kind of stuff. So I'm interacting now. And I invited comedians. We had a very small memorial for my dad. But a couple of these comedians came to my dad's memorial. And and my dad also was someone who got starstruck. I just have to say. He would fully admit it. He would say to me, he even wrote about it in his memoir. Like, when my kid went to the special Beverly Hills Hollywood schools, you know, and she'd come home and say, oh, my my friend's dad is da da da, and he'd be like, "Oh my god!" Um, <laughs> he because my dad was starstruck. He was a starstruck kid, you know. It's it's how he grew up. So, so anyway, this started happening to me, and I would watch it. Like even becoming friends with Gary Shandling, he and I went to lunch the first time we we talked on the phone a bunch right after my dad died. I cried on the phone with him the day after my dad died. He came to the memorial. He's like, let's stay in touch. We went to lunch together. And I just remember leaving lunch and driving down PCH back home and being like, oh my God, I just had lunch with Gary Shandling. And even when I was like at lunch with him, especially the first couple of years, I would feel in my body this like, oh my God, I'm talking to Gary Shandling right now moment. And then yeah. I'd be like, breathe, Kelly, come back to your body. <laughs> Gary's just a human. You're talking about Buddhism. Let's get back to the conversation. But, but I, you know, I watched myself get captured by it. I get it. And I still, to this day, when I meet someone who's got that kind of grip on me or is a celebrity, someone in the public sphere, I watch my body, the energy in my body start to change. And I'm luckily so conscious of it now that I'm like, 
I usually ground my feet. I'm like, if I can like ground right. my feet and make the roots of my feet go into the earth and breathe and come back to my body, I will find my kind of soulful connection body. I don't know how you would, what you would call that, but I, I find myself grounding. Yeah. The tension leaves my body and I can feel the projection just floating away, going down, disappearing. So now I'm just talking to a human about his day or his work or what she's up to. Um, and when I interview people, I, I've, you know, I've gotten, I've done a lot of interviews the last 12 years because of my Sirius XM show. And uh, so I've really learned to just be with the human being in the room with me. And, um, and I'm just, I, it's just such an exciting thing now to like be able to, to watch it come up and start to like grab you. And then you're like, Oh, look at this thing happening. Look at this. And then it's like, okay, Kelly, you know what to do? Just relax. It's okay. You're going to be fine. They're just a human being. Let them be a human being. Wow. Yeah. What I hear and what I love is that there's an awareness of that feeling. Like even for you, you might still get starstruck by somebody, right? If I do whatever, or if we objectify someone in any way, like let's say we're really attracted to somebody, then we're you know only looking at them in terms of their body, Right. Or even just emotionally attached to that person, the same thing. Yep. So it's kind of like, and that's why I think Gary, what a wonderful, yep. what what a wonderful friendship you both had, because there was an awareness there. I'm sure he towards you, you towards him, that feeling of like, oh my God, it's Gary Shandling. But it doesn't influence your behavior in the sense, if in the same way as if it was unconscious. Yeah. And maybe that's something that we can take. It's like, hey, oh my God, it's this person. All right. Yes. That's part of who they are. That's part of who they are. That's it. And then it doesn't influence us as much. Yes. And, and I think you can use this in your everyday also, especially, you know, in any kind of relationship, because in every single relationship we have, like you just said, like maybe it's a physical attraction or an emotional, like parents, I mean, parents, it's all projection. (laughs) Until you get to a certain age where you're like, I need to take them off the pedestal now, you know, like, or, or I need to stop demonizing them, right? Because we do one of two things to our parents in order to separate from them. You know, it's part of one way of separation is we just demon, we rebel and demonize them and make them the bad guy or the bad lady. And then they become that person. Ah, rah, 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 rah. Or we completely worship them and we're enmeshed with them and they can do no wrong, uh, which is not true because they're humans. They've done something wrong, I'm sure. And you need to take them off the pedestal. So you either need to take them down from the pedestal or take them out Jeez. from like hell, <laughs> wherever you've put them uh, and start to see them as humans. And same thing with your spouse. You know, Bob and I, my husband, we've been together for... 20, married 25 years, been together for 28 years. Uh, you know, you kind of project stuff onto this long-term relationship person and you see them a certain way. And, you, and sometimes you have to like refresh and be like, oh yeah, that's, that's the idea I have of who he is. Like I'll ask him, I'll think, oh, I don't want to ask him that. He's just going to react that way. And then I ask him right. that and he reacts some way completely different. And I go, oh yeah, I forgot. He's, <laughs> he's not the person in my head. <laughs> I I love what you said about how when we objectify people or idolize people, anyone, 
it, it has a two-part effect. The first effect is, is how we're relating to them. But the second effect, which is, I think, much more dangerous, is how we're relating to ourselves. So we, we play small. We, we just start playing really small on a really deep level. And I think about Ram Das when he talks about the, the meaning of guru, and he's used the word guru meaning doorway. The guru is the doorway. The guru is to show you what is possible within yourself, your soul, your higher wisdom, your Buddha nature, whatever you want to call it, whatever tradition you follow. So the guru shows you what is already existing within yourself. And that objectification or idolization inherently separates you from becoming that person, which is, which is what the guru wants for you. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I've written... You know, I have an inside of me somewhere a book that I want to write about fame and celebrity. But um, and this is w- what I talk about is that. You know, I, I'm fascinated by celebrity culture, uh, you know, and why do we have it? Why do we do this? And it really is this, you know, and this is also about demonization and racism and all this other kind of stuff is we project out our shadow aspects, right? The, the aspects of ourselves that we cannot accept our ego. Once again, we're back to ego. When the ego cannot accept certain traits or qualities or ways of being, good or bad, we eject them outside of ourselves. We project them onto other people. And then we either demonize some people, groups, color of skin, gender, whatever it is, or we worship them. We see them as gods, whether they're gurus or movie stars or whatever it is. And that, that part of ourself that is sacred, that is connected to the divine um, is the part that we project onto the guru and we project onto the celebrity. And we think that you have to be special or extraordinary to carry that quality in some way. And that's why then we lower ourselves to them because we think, well, it's on them. I don't have that in me because, well, you haven't because you've projected it out. You're not, you're not embracing it. And so I, I found that the longer I was hanging out with these quote unquote famous people and these celebrities, I was watching my own progress with claiming my own divine, sacred energy, the, you know, the, the divine self that I am, that we all are, we are all the divine child, right? You know, um, and that uh, this 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 game we play, this ego game we play by projecting it onto other people is is such a moment of self harm, because um, you know, and of course our fear always is if we claim the divine the divinity in ourselves that then we'll become inflated, and and believe that, and that's when the ego then claims Absolutely. the divinity and says, yeah, uh, but but right, but when, but when we know that we are just we are the 10,000 things, right? We, we, we have the 10,000 names or wh- whatever the thing is. I'm not like a huge s- scholar of Buddhism, but, but that thing, like we are all of that, you know, that beautiful poem that Thich Nhat Hanh yes. wrote called, you know, Call Me By My True Names, where he talks about he's the, you know, the, the child starving because of the Ugandan war. And I am also the, the arms seller, the arms dealer, you know, and I'm the girl raped on the boat and I am the rapist, you know, we are all these things. So, um, that's the biggest humbling there is to realize that we are 
the highest of the high and the lowest of the low, and we are none of it. It goes back to the present moment. It's kind of like we, we have a choice. Sometimes there's not awareness there, so we act unconsciously, but we have the possibility for anything. Well, one of the people, one of the only people I know personally who I think has been able to transcend fame is Dr. Jane Goodall. And I'm, there's, I'm sure there, there are others that I have connected with, but I can't think of them right now. But the reason I think of Dr. Jane is because she's done that inner work first. She's selfless by nature. Her, her life is one of compassion and service. All the money that comes in for her speaking events goes to the Institute, not her Institute, goes to the Jane Goodall Institute. And there are very few people that I've seen that have been able to transcend that fame. And so I think a really good way for us to close and where I want to bring it back to is the very beginning, talking about what Gary said about that egolessness. It feels to me like uh, fame, money, power, influence, all of these things, they may come or they may not come, but the only healthy way they can enter our lives is if they come indirectly off of the heels of our commitment to self-awareness, to compassion, to service. And it's kind of like they come as a byproduct. So when I hear Gary talk about egolessness, it makes sense to me. And the reason he's so powerful is because he did that inner work first. So the question I want to ask you, Kelly, is you have a master's in Jungian psychology, and you've been studying Buddhism for more than 20 years. So on the one hand, we have a healthy sense of self. And on the other hand, we have emptiness or selflessness, right? And in some schools of thought, people would say, well, you, you can't have a healthy sense of self if you want to dissolve the self away. How do we both live in the world, developing a healthy sense of self and live not of this world, sort of stepping into that place of emptiness and selflessness simultaneously? Yeah, right. I'll just <laughs> sum that up in three minutes. Just sum that one up for us, Kelly. You know, um, I mean, that's the big question, right? That's what, that's the spiritual journey. And what I've come to understand and mostly working with one of my main teachers, uh, Genpo Roshi, who does something called big mind practice. He uses gestalt techniques to step into big mind. And when I learned how to do that, when I learned how to shift in a chair and sit down and be in big mind at the snap of a finger, um, and it wasn't some like, oh, I don't need to go hike up the Himalayas to do this. Uh, I understood that it was a state of mind. It is a state of mind. And it's a parallel track. That's the way he always talks about it. There's always the ego track. There's always the human track here. And then there is the non-dual, no mind space here. And it's always available. I remember my first Buddhist teacher, Katriona Reed, would say, it's available like that. And I look at her like, what? How do you do that? And the trick always was and always is. And when Genpo teaches you how to do the process is he has you speak to something called seeking mind, which is where we are all seekers. Anyone listening to this podcast is a seeker. We are seeking enlightenment. I'm seeking the path. I'm seeking the answers. But as long as you are in seeking mind, you are only in seeking mind. And the minute Gempo says, I'd like to now speak to non-seeking mind, you are free. Wow. And it's available to us anytime. Like that. 
If we can be here now. If we can be here now. Yeah. Now the trick is, can you stay there? No, this animal body wants chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and has ambition and gets up in the morning and and has a body that can't walk around in non-seeking all the time. I don't know. Maybe the Dalai Lama can. Maybe Thich Nhat Hanh. I don't know. Maybe, you know, Baba Ram Dass. I don't know. But I do know that we can visit that space all the time. And then the more often you visit that no mind, that no seeking mind space, when you are over in the day-to-day persona mind, you are less attached to everything. And is that the practice that we step into it every day? Yes. And that is why sitting practice, for those of us who do Zen sitting practice, that's what you're doing. You're just sitting. You're releasing seeking mind, you're releasing pursuit and seeking and all of that, and you're just sitting. That's what zazen means, just sitting. What's one simple takeaway, one practice that we can do when we we leave here, Kelly, to go to that non-seeking mind every day? Uh, Be here now. Oh, I mean, I it. it is just that. It. it is. It is, right. Putting your, putting your butt on the cushion and sitting for five to 45 minutes a day will change the wiring of your brain. It just does. And mindfully eating a grape, you know, the little things, pausing and stopping. Wow, Kelly. It's such a blessing to be here with you. I'm so, so thankful you took the time to be a part of the podcast and I very much look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm I'm truly, truly honored, Chris. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.